Welcome back to our study of the book of Genesis. Uh, This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And the title of this sermon is Ruling Representatives. So far, we've seen the glory and grandeur of God with him at the center of his creation as the theater of his glory. He spoke and things came into being. He brought order out of chaos and light out of darkness. The way that the the first chapter of Genesis is written, it's meant to draw us into two things, wonder and worship at who God is. That's the right way to read the Bible. With God as the focus, and him as the primary figure. And yet, today we come to day six. That's distinctly different in a number of ways, focusing a floodlight on humanity. Now, most weeks I'm up here laboring to get our focus off of us and on to God. But this week is different. Moses wants us, God wants us to zoom in on us. But I think you'll come to see that it's still all about God's glory. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. From the very beginning, I want us to see that the authors of Scripture are on our side. They're on our team. What do I mean by that? I mean that they want us to understand what their point is. They want to help us see the main point that they're getting at. In our day and age, we might do that through writing in bold, or all caps, or by using a highlighter. Moses does it in a different way. He uses three different methods here to kind of grab our attention and to get us to focus in on the importance of mankind. First, he simply uses sheer word count or quantity. Notice that all the other days are pretty concise, but not this one. 
Day six is significantly expanded. So he uses volume. Second, Moses uses a broken pattern to grab our attention. Notice that that there's been a clear formula in creation up to this point. Let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. To hear, it's not let there be. It's let us make. Further, there's this pattern of God created according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, over and over and over again. But not here. Here, God doesn't create man according to its kind, but instead, in his image, after his likeness. Something's different here. More on this later. So Moses is highlighting day six with quantity and with breaking his repetitive pattern. But there's one more. I want each of you to to grab your Bibles and just kind of hold them out in front of you for a second. Without even reading the words, do you notice anything different about verse 27? Yes, most of your translations have it indented a little bit. Why do they do this? Well, because it's a shift from narrative to poetry. This is the first poem in the Bible. And here's the point. Moses wants us to see that there's something important going on here. Something different. Not that what God created before this is somehow unimportant, but this is the pinnacle. And David understood this when he wrote Psalm 8 that we read earlier for our scripture reading. Let's read that again with closer eyes. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, he says, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Do you see that? Creation is majestic when you begin to look at it. And compared to all of that, man is a blip on the radar. And yet... Look at verse 5. Verse 5. Yet you have made him, meaning man, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you see that? Two different times as as bookends to that psalm, God's name is majestic in all the earth. He starts out by telling us creation is amazing. And God has given tiny old man glory, honor, and dominion. And the psalm again finishes with God's name being majestic in all the earth. So how is all of that connected? That's what we'll see here in Genesis 1. 
It should shock us after seeing God create the ocean, the mountains, the sun, moon, and the stars, to think that humans are the pinnacle. Why is that? Well, let's look closely at the text again. And I want to center around two truths that we can't miss in Genesis 1. Number one, mankind is God's representative. Mankind is God's representative. Two, mankind is God's vice ruler or ruler under God. So point one, mankind is God's representative. Look with me at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, after reading, let there be, let there be, let there be, according to its kind, according to its kind. This is huge. First, this isn't let there be. It's let us, plural. Now, as with the word Elohim before, this is significant. And there are a number of different interpretations for why this is. Some believe that it's God talking to the earth itself, or to angels, or to the heavenly court. But I find all of those arguments to be weak. Here's why. No one believes that humans are created in the image of angels, or of earth, or of the heavenly court. Humans are created in the image of God. God seems to be deliberating with the Trinity here. And to be clear, this, or the word Elohim just by itself, isn't a full argument for the Trinity. We're reading the New Testament back into this text to get a full doctrine of the Trinity. But I want you to hear me say, that's okay. We should be reading the Old Testament into the New and the New into the Old. Remember, this is one book that tells one story from beginning to end. I simply believe that the word Elohim and this let us and our is a small glimpse into God's Trinitarian nature from the very beginning. Further, just like in Genesis 1.1, the Bible doesn't argue for the Trinity. It simply reveals what it is. One God three persons, equal in value, being, and worth, yet distinct in role. Remember that. Equal in value, being, and worth, yet distinct in role. Let's keep going. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Again, the question arises that David so beautifully poses in Psalm 8. If I, as a human, am standing next to the ocean, or a mountain, or even a redwood, why am I significant? What is man that you are mindful of him? Well, it's this right here. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's this right here. Because we're made in the image of God. But what does that mean? Well, whole books have been written answering that question. And the answers are vast. But in its essence, to be made in God's image means to reflect his character and his characteristics. 
We're created distinct from the animals and everything else in creation in this way. We're created to rule. More on this later. We reflect God's attributes of rationality and that he's personal. We reflect that God is a moral being. Here's what I'm saying. To be created in God's image isn't about some physical attribute. It's about his character and us reflecting that character as his representatives on earth. Do you understand just how significant and important this is? This has so many implications for so many hot-button controversial issues today. First, racism. Why is it wrong to be racist? Well, if you're secular, you actually don't have a leg to stand on here. You don't have an answer. All you can say is, it's just wrong. But wrong is a moral category. In other words, to say that racism is wrong, you're borrowing capital from the Christian worldview. Atheist historian Yuval Noah Harari, he writes this. He writes, Homo sapiens have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. If you see one animal kill another in, na in nature, that's how it is. There's nothing necessarily moral about it. No natural rights. What I'm wanting you to see is he's following a, a consistent atheistic secular worldview here in that statement. In a secular worldview, there's, there's actually nothing different about humans from anything else. Therefore, if I can benefit myself by means of racism, I actually should. No natural rights. Now, I'm not saying that all secularists actually believe that. But I am saying that this would be the logical conclusion if they were consistent in their own worldview. To say that racism is wrong, you're borrowing from the Christian worldview and this text specifically in Genesis 1. Every single, every single human being is created in the image of God. Therefore, we're equal in value, being, and worth. We have glorious dignity as God's representatives. You don't have to be woke to believe that. It's right here in our Bibles. Two, abortion. Every single human being is created in the image of God, equal in value, being, and worth. To exterminate an image bearer is a grave offense against God. And every child, whether outside the womb or inside, is an image bearer of God. Abortion is murder. And look at where God roots the evil of murder. In Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, it says this. It says, And for your lifeblood... I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And look at this in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man 
in his own image. Every human, every human being, regardless of age, sex, race, economic status, is equally valued because they're created in the image of God. Ponder that for a moment. And I'll just ask a question. Where do you get your value at its core? Where do you get your value at its core? Is it your race? Your age? Your bank account? Is it your experience or your place on the company ladder? Is it your artistic or athletic ability? Or is it that you're created in the image of God? Now, don't get me wrong, all of the above are great gifts of God, but what's the most important thing about you? What, at the core, defines who you are? Don't miss the dignity and value that mankind is given being an image bearer of the God of the universe. This gives value to every human being in the womb of varying mental capacities. All races, ages, social classes. Every human being is made in the image of God. Let's dig a little deeper, though. God's word repeats this truth once again in verse 27. Look at that. He repeats the same thing. But it's not redundant. He wants to highlight how important this is and add further clarity. Look at verse 27. This is the poetry. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's two truths here that God, through the pen of Moses, doesn't want us to miss. First, and we've already hit this, God created man in his own image. But How is Moses using the Hebrew language here? Well, uh, the word translated man is the Hebrew word Adam, which is the word for human or mankind. So uh, up front, Moses is telling us that every human, men and women, every human is equally created in God's image with all of the dignity, value, and worth that we've already talked about. But Moses doesn't stop there, does he? He continues on to tell us something else, something important. Male and female, he created them. Zakar and Nekevah, male and female. See this. God didn't just generically create people or humans. He created male and female. I'm about to wade where angels fear to tread. But scripture doesn't fear this topic at all. It's crystal clear. Men and women are equal in value, being, and worth. Image of God. And they're distinct. Beautifully purposefully distinct, male and female. We're not going to go beyond what this text actually says this morning, 
The scriptures say so much more about gender roles. But for now, this text is abundantly clear. Men and women are equal in value, being, worth, and dignity as image bearers of God. And they're gloriously and purposefully distinct. If we get this wrong, we blur God's image. And we can get it wrong in two different ways, at least. One way that we can get it wrong is that we can demean one gender, thus blurring the truth that both men and women are equal in value, being, and worth as image bearers. Women. You don't have to go to a progressive church to hear that message. Women are valuable to God, as valuable as men, and vice versa. But the second way that we can get this wrong is ignoring gender altogether, pretending like it doesn't matter. In marriage, men and women aren't simply interchangeable. God has designed you distinct on purpose. In the church, men and women are equally valuable and and also distinctly designed by God to be distinct on purpose. The Bible teaches that God has intentionally designed men and women, male and female, to complement one another. Men serve a role that women do not, and women serve a role that men do not. Neither role is better than or more valuable than the other. They're just gloriously different and distinct. If if we were to say that, that women or, or that, that yeah, women are men and women are completely interchangeable, if we were to say that, we could just have a boys' club church without any women, and we wouldn't be missing anything. On the other hand, you could have a girls' club church without any men, and you wouldn't be missing anything if men and women are just interchangeable. But If God has purposefully and gloriously made us distinct, we need each other. We have to live live out our gender fully and completely to the glory of God. Because we we complement one another. If we're missing women in the church, we're missing a huge piece of the puzzle. And if we're missing men in the church, we're missing a huge piece of the puzzle. We're missing roles that God has designed us for. So see this. Gender distinctions aren't a result of the fall. They're by God's good design. Genesis 2 is going to begin to spell that out more and more for us. So I'll leave it there for now, letting this text drive us. But there's at least one more explicit truth here that we can't miss. God made male and female beautifully and intentionally. And he doesn't make mistakes. God is a God of order. I hope you've seen that the last two weeks in the text. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's in complete control of what he's doing. And here he makes us male and female. Your sex, your gender, is intentionally from God. I'm not talking about gender stereotypes here either. 
That if you're a man, you'll like blue. If you're a woman, you'll like pink. No, I'm talking about your identity that God has given you. The transgender movement, and it is a movement, has completely brought confusion to God's clear truth here. God has designed you, and he's brought you into this world as either a male or a female. Not neither, not both, not fluid, and not changing. The scriptures aren't confused on this. Our culture is. According to a recent poll, 7.2% of the U.S. population in 2022 identified as LGBTQ. That's a pretty high number compared with history. But I want to highlight something different in this poll. In that same poll, nearly 20% of Gen Z identified as LGBTQ. That's one in five. One in five kids born from 1997 to 2012 are confused on their sexuality. We're dealing with an epidemic. We're in a time where this issue is front and center in the schools, in sports, and even most recently on beer cans. You can't escape it. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do? Well, first, from the scriptures, we know the truth. We know the truth. God has made us in his image, equally valuable in being, worth, and dignity. And he's gloriously and purposefully made us distinctly male and female by design. He's created us to be wired for relationship as male and female. More on that in Genesis 2. Anything that blurs that is a distortion of God's good design and his truth. Whether it's homosexuality, transgenderism, or even egalitarianism. The belief that that men and women are completely interchangeable with no role distinctions in the home or church. God has has given us distinct gender by design. And both genders are beautifully amazing. We've got to know this truth as Christians and to live out the beauty of this truth. That's how we image God well. Second, alongside knowing the truth, we should be known for our gospel compassion. We should be known for our gospel compassion. I want to read for you a text from Acts 17. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip over there. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 18. It says this. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus 
and the resurrection. What's going on here? Paul looks around him and he sees rampant idolatry. What are idols? Idols are something trying to image God wrongly, taking God off the throne and putting something else there. The sexual revolution is nothing short of idolatry. Taking the image of God, taking God's good gifts and distorting them, taking the self and its desires and placing them on the throne. Paul, in Acts 17, sees rampant idolatry. And what does the text say? Look at verse 16 closely. His spirit was provoked within him. It's the Greek word paraxuno. His spirit was provoked within him. If you've ever heard the English word paroxysm, this is where we get it. And it means this. It means a sudden attack or violent expression, or a sudden worsening of symptoms. What is it that Acts 17 is telling us? Paul sees rampant idolatry, and he's sick to his stomach about it. He's disgusted by what he sees, because he knows that it's an affront to God. But what does he do? Does does he stay sitting up on the hill, praying for God's judgment, or, or run the other way? Does he go on the Athens News Network to bemoan the degradation of the city with all the hand-wringing that he can do? Does he picket and protest? No. He compassionately moves toward the mess. He reasons with him, the text tells us, by preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Understand this. We, as God's people, should be troubled in spirit by all of the gender and sexuality confusion that's going on around us. It should bother us because it's an offense to God. It should bother us because it's sin. And we should move toward it boldly and compassionately with the gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I'm going to come back to this in Genesis 2 more fully, so I need to leave it there for now. But we must know and live the truth. And we must act with compassion in preaching the gospel to a broken world. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you want to try to understand this issue, and the worldview are behind the sexual revolution, I highly, highly recommend this book, Strange New World by Carl Truman. Um, it's really helpful at not on only understanding the issue and where it's come from, but also offering some thoughtful ways forward. Strange New World by Carl Truman. So point one, mankind is God's representative. Point two, mankind is God's vice ruler. Notice that in this text, there's both form and function. Form and function. Form, man is made in the image of God. And then, function, what God has created man to do. 
Two different times, Moses pairs these things together in our text. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's the form. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over, the, and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Form and function. Again in verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's God doing here? I want us to see that this is a coronation. He's crowning a king under himself. This word, dominion, it's king language. Remember what we saw in Psalm 8 earlier. Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6, speaking of man. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and done what? Crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have given him what? Dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Dominion language is king language. Under God, but over all creation. Further, look back in Genesis 1 at verse 28 again. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. Subdue? Yes. And this is also kingly language. But more specifically, it's military language and violent language. Look at Numbers 32. Numbers 32, verses 20 through 22. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord, until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then skip down to verse 29. And Moses said to them, if the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed to battle before the Lord, will pass with you over the Jordan and over the land, uh, and over the Jordan, and the land shall be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. Subduing land involves defeating and even killing an enemy. Does anyone else find that strange? Here we are in our text, Genesis 1, in a perfect creation at this point. And the vice-regent king under God is already being given military subduing language. What's up with that? We'll soon find out why. Genesis 3, right? There's an intruder in the garden. Adam has already been told what to do. The question is, will he obey? What I'm wanting you to see here is that this language of, of dominion and of subduing isn't about exploiting the creation. Many modern-day environmentalists actually accuse Christianity of not caring about the earth, and they cite this passage. But it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? Human beings as rulers under God, are given authority over the earth 
to use it for good purposes, to cultivate it, and to do good and destroy evil. Remember, we're created in the image of God. And in that image, we're meant to bring order out of chaos. We do that through dominion, taking good, godly rule over whatever domain he's entrusted to you. And again, there are so many implications for this in how you run your home, in how you operate your business, in how you work with your hands in art or craftsmanship. You're not there to exploit, but to bring flourishing, order, and goodness for God's glory. Now, remember how at the beginning I told you that this text is about us, but also not about us. Here's how all of this ties together. This text tells us that as human beings, we're kings ruling under God as his image bearers. And it's important to know that in the ancient Near East, when, when kings would rule, what would they do? They would set up statues of themselves throughout the borders of their land to show their sovereign domain. You come to the border, you see a statue, and you know, oh, that king rules here. That, that seems to be what's happening in Daniel chapter 3 with Nebuchadnezzar. They would set up images of themselves to display their authority and their sovereignty over an entire land. Do you see what God's doing here? He's placed mankind on earth, and he's made them how? In his image, as his vice regents to rule. Why? reflect his glory, and second, to display his sovereign authority over everything. That's what this is all about, and that's why verse 28 is so important. God places his image on man and on woman, and what's the very first thing that he does? Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants his image to multiply and to fill the earth, to show his sovereign authority over it all. And to be part of this is a blessing. Isn't that amazing? Before mankind, male and female, before they did anything, God blesses them. That's what kind of God we're dealing with here. A benevolent God who blesses not based on their performance, but based on his character. He blesses them before they have time to earn it or deserve it. Do you notice that? He's a giving God. We see this in both verses 29 and 30. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation but not for their glory, for God's representative ruling reflections of this benevolent, rational, moral, sovereign king. Now, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, we know what happened to this image, don't we? 
Genesis chapter 3. Ah, gut punch. Instead of functioning under God's authority and subduing the serpent, mankind chose idolatry. Instead of uh, following God's authority, deciding to reject God's good and gracious and benevolent rule. And in that, the image of God was fractured, distorted, broken. Every brokenness that you and I experience on this earth is because of that moment in Genesis 3. Abuse, lying, gossiping, theft, sexual immorality, selfishness. The list could go on and on and on. Every brokenness that you can think of is because of Genesis 3, where the image of God was shattered. The more sinful we are, the less human we are. Because to be human is to reflect God's image. But here's the good news, family. Jesus. Yes, Jesus. He he came to this earth not as a broken image of God, but as the perfect image of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 says this. He, meaning Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He came to restore the perfect image of God in us through his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that that Psalm 8, which we've read several times today, is ultimately about who? Jesus. He is the ultimate fulfillment of, of the man who was crowned with glory and honor, who put everything in subjection under his feet. He ruled and subdued perfectly. And look at this glorious truth from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 49, says this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, that's who we're talking about here in Genesis 1, by the way. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, who's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you see that, church? Every single one of us are firstborn of the natural man, the first man, Adam, the man of dust. Every single one of us are born because of that man's sin as broken images of God. We inherit that. But Jesus, the last Adam, the life-giving spirit, the man of heaven, he came. And those who repent and believe in him, this text tells us, will also bear his image, the perfect image of God once again. The first Adam came and bore the image of God and broke it. But the true and better Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, came and bore the image of God and restores it to his people so that we can reflect God once again as his ruling representatives on earth. This is what we were made for, church. Jesus in the resurrection is the only hope of brokenness being restored. Not politics, not hand-wringing, not circling the wagons. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So imitate him. Grow more and more into his image. Proclaim him to a lost and broken world. Rule and represent him well. Let's pray.